All right, this week you have to read book one or chapter one of Plato's Republic, along with your other reading assignments. But let's begin. The first thing to discuss is why did he write it? The impetus for writing Plato's Republic. It's possible, it's likely, that the reason he set out to to write this work was because his master and presumably his friend Socrates had been executed unjustly by the quote-unquote democracy of Athens, more like the mobocracy of Athens and its various um, elite and wealthy bureaucrats. Socrates, as you know, was forced to drink hemlock as a disturber of the peace, a disturber of the people, a rabble-rouser, a blasphemer of the gods. And, and this injustice spurred Plato on to write a book on the definition of justice, the meaning of justice. But um, as we get into it, have you ever experienced an injustice, one that you can talk about publicly? A theft, a fraud, a slander. Someone's ever done something completely and utterly unjust to you. Yeah, you can think of a few things. Marie, you have something to say? Um, I don't think I should say it. Okay, good. Well, don't say it. You can, you can talk to me later about what Amelia did to you, though. <laughs> right. You know, one time I had my, um, my entire house um, cleaned out. They stole everything. They stole, they stole the toilets. Um, and if, uh, if that wasn't bad enough, when the police came to, to fingerprint it, they spilled the fingerprint dust on the brand new carpet. So that'll be another $1,000. Um, it was an accident, but they did not um, offer to pay it back. So um, after a little bit of searching, the police told me that they have a pretty good idea where all my possessions were. And I thought, okay, great, we're going to go and get them. And a police officer brought a refrigerator back to me. It, it had clearly fallen off the back of a pickup truck and was just dented and thrashed. And I said, well, if you found the, the fridge in one day and you told me that you have an idea where my stuff is, you mind if I went over there and, and got it? And he started yelling at me and told me to be grateful that he found the fridge. And it was very clear to me that the police had all my stuff, I think. I think they had all my stuff or somehow it had been impounded and was going to go to auction to pay certain bills. I don't know. But it was weird how he jumped down my throat for asking to go see where the rest of my stuff was. One time I, um, my window was shot out of my van by my neighbor. And when I called the police, uh, the police ran my name through the system and, uh, and then left. Oh, that's all they did was to see if I were a criminal and whether or not there were any warrants out for my arrest. And after that, they just kind of left. I was like, well, thanks. I'm glad I called the police. Um, pastors, of course, uh, deal with injustices often. In Canada, they're being arrested for having church even. In California, that happened as well. Even uh, in Louisiana, a pastor was arrested during COVID for having church. Injustices happen all the time, right? And I'm sure you have a few stories that you'll have to tell me after a recording, right? But it's this injustice, one person against another person, or a city, or a government against an individual. It's this injustice that's spawned Plato to ask, is there any way, 
is there any place, is there any time, is there any city or city-state where the rights of an individual could be respected by the group, by the whole? Is there any place where the common good of the whole and the good for the individuals could be balanced in perfect justice? Can the one and the many, that we've talked about quite a bit in this class and last year, can the one and the many get along in justice and in equity? Can there be a just and equitable society for all? You see, you, you understand, and we talked about this in the past, that the Greek world was controlled by the household. That was the basic political unit. What, do we, what is the name for that in Greek? Oikos. The oikos, that's right. But eventually the tribal uh, form of politics, the political order dominated by the oikos, gave way to the city-state. And what is the name of their city-states? The polis. And you had city-states such as Thebes and Sparta and Athens. And when you were born into a particular city-state, you were born into covenant with it. And your rights and the rights of the city-state as a, as a whole, the one versus the many, are constantly at odds with each other. Was there any political policies that can be written, laws that can be written? Could we, could we build a city on justice and equity where everyone could live a blessed and happy life? That's sort of his question. Socrates has taught his, had taught his whole life um, various philosophies, trying to help people have a blessed life and how, how, trying to help people benefit the city of Athens. But in the end, the city of Athens, even under the city-state, the, the great and mighty polis, turned on Socrates and executed him. And so Plato's sort of throwing up his hands and saying, is there ever going to be justice in this world? Is there a city whose architect and builder is the Lord? Is there any perfect, ideal city where justice and peace and happiness reigns. And what's the answer? Yes. Yes. And what is the name of that city? I'm sorry? Zion. The New Jerusalem. That's right. But Plato didn't know of the New Jerusalem. You could say really that the murder of Socrates spurred Plato into trying through human reason, through philosophy, to discover the New Jerusalem. And of course... There's a few things you can discover with human reason and philosophy, but none of it, none of any, nothing from in the heavenlies, in the other dimensions, the ultimates can be discovered through human reason. Right. Plato was 28 years old when his master was murdered. Athens was in a, a golden age or sort of the end of the golden age. And Sparta was... Know, threatening Athenian life and culture. And it's in this context that he writes the, writes the book. His two big philosophical questions, if you can go ahead and write these down. Is there a higher divine standard of justice? Or just real simple, is there perfect justice? What's the standard? Is there a standard of justice? What is a triangle? You know what a triangle is, right? It's got three sides. When we see a triangle, can we recognize it as a triangle? Can we think in our mind of, the, of a triangle? Can we picture it? Can we discover it? With our human reason, can we find a true and equitable and just triangle? Yes, there it is, three sides. But is it so easy to discover a just society? Right. A perfect construction of man where everyone can be happy and everyone's rights can be secure 
and there could be peace and happiness and flourishing. Could we figure that out like we figure out a triangle? It's a little more complicated, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. But that's what he's asking. He's like, what is, is there a standard? Is there a perfect political system? Is there a perfect justice? Is there a perfect city? The second big philosophical question is, is it possible for a city on earth to be ruled by this perfect standard of justice? I think in short, is there an ideal city? An ideal society? A city, all by the way, a city, all the city is, is an organized society. Is there an ideal organized society? And he discusses these questions, and he never really admits to getting to you know, a final conclusion. He, and in fact, he writes other books later in life to try and answer the same question, to discover the triangle, so to speak, to, to finally realize if we order society this way, if we organize things this way, then everyone can be happy and blessed. Now, what would, uh, what would Aristophanes think about this? Aristophanes being the comedian who wrote The Clouds, what would, what would Aristophanes think about pondering these big, basic questions of life? What would he say Plato is? A philosopher? What would he think? He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. He would joke about it. He'd make fun of him, sure. He would say he has his head in the clouds, wouldn't he? That's where the expression comes from. That it doesn't do us any good to, to ask these big, or we might say basic, questions of life. We should stick to more practical, earthy things. But as we've learned in this class time and time again, what you believe about the basic questions of life will determine your behavior by and large. It's important to ask the big and basic questions of life. And I'm glad that Plato does. Of course, he doesn't have um, the Bible to give him any certainty or any certain and true answers. Right? Now, moving on to the next section, the significance or the importance of the book, The Republic. This is one of the most influential works of philosophy in all of Western civilization. They, they say that somewhere somebody is reading The Republic. Somewhere somebody on this planet is reading this book. In fact, almost every single philosopher since Plato has wrestled with some of the very same questions that Plato's wrestling with. Some people say that all the philosophers of all of Western civilization are just footnotes to Plato. And you remember when we studied the modern age, did Rousseau have a vision of an equitable and just society where all could flourish and be happy? Yes, he believed that uh, succumbing to the, to the God of collective man and rendering power from the family and the church to the state would bring about societal equity and justice. Did Karl Marx have a vision for the just and ideal city? Yes. And did that go well? No. Did Hitler have a, a vision? Yes, they're all, they're all basically answering, is there a city, a perfect city? Is there a heavenly city? Is there a way for man to create heaven on earth? Through politics, through law, through various policies and procedures. And they all have their various visions. Plato does as well. Even though I think Plato is probably a little more humble about his, 
his uh, findings than, let's say, Karl Marx and Engels. So that's one of the most important things about this book is you're reading the book that all the philosophers of Western civilization are reading and, uh, and, and basing much of their beliefs on. Does Plato get everything right? What do you think? Well, of course not. But he does ask a lot of good questions. And, and I think they're good questions for us to ask. Another important factor of this book is that his rationalism, his trust in human ability to, to create heaven on earth, to create the ideal city, to bring about human flourishing, his, his pride in man and man's reason is still with us today. It's probably the number one competitor to Christianity. It's in, it's in Christian churches as well. Even in Christian churches today, unless it makes sense to individuals, unless they can see it clearly, they very often won't believe it, even if it's said in the Bible, because they still have that platonic arrogance and humanism in their own hearts. And literarily, this book is the first of its kind. It's the first allegorical political philosophy book. It's one of the first philosophical books ever written that we have. In fact, we didn't even have this book for a while. It it was lost throughout all of the Middle Ages. We had other of Plato's works, but it was later discovered and began to have a huge impact on Western civilization after it was discovered. Moving on, the main characters... Plato, of course, is the author, but he never appears in the book. His main character is Socrates. Socrates, of course, is dead, but he uses Socrates as the, uh, the main character. And what Socrates does is he keeps the conversation going. He asks questions and he makes long speeches. And we're not exactly sure, are these the thoughts of Plato or are these the thoughts of Socrates or both? But he, but he puts words in Socrates' mouth and has him argue and debate, mostly by asking questions. And what do you call the style of debate or teaching where questions are asked to, to invoke response and to get discussion, to draw things out of people and help them understand things more clearly? What is that style of teaching called? Yeah, it is a type of dialogue. More specifically, it's the Socratic method. Socratic method. Where you ask questions. So throughout the book, you're going to see Socrates use the Socratic method, asking questions in order to, as a group, you know, come to the truth. Can we simply ask questions and as a group come together to discover ultimate truth? No, because we don't believe in the, that, that power of human reason. We need divine revelation. But the Greeks believe that, or at least the philosophical Greeks believed, that ultimate truth could be discovered through human reason. And his method was the Socratic method, asking questions, going back and forth, discussing and dialoguing. The, the, the second, one of the second most important characters is Thrasymachus. And you can spell that T-H-R-A-S. Thras, Y, Makus, M-A-C-H-U-S. And he is not a philosopher. He is a sophist. 
And who remembers the defining feature of the sophists from our, our uh, reading of the clouds? What were the sophists like? There is no truth. They're like modern-day postmodernists or moral relativists. They didn't believe in truth. They believed in winning the argument. They were like a lot of people who comment on Facebook. Truth doesn't matter. The other human doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is winning. And if they won arguments, they would make more money. The philosophers believed in discovering ultimate truth through human reason. The sophists didn't even believe there was truth that could be discovered. And so a large portion of this book is Socrates um, engaging with Thrasymachus and trying to show that there is truth that can be discovered. We could build heaven on earth. We could build an ideal republic, a city where all people could flourish and be happy. Uh, There's also Cephalus is the owner of the home where the debate takes place. He's not an Athenian. He is from out of town. And so he doesn't hate Socrates. And so it's a good place to have this little secret discussion. There's Polymarchus, who's the son of Cephalus, and he's like an amateur philosopher that pipes in here and there. And then there's Plato's brothers, Glaucon and Adamantus. <clears throat> And uh, you don't have to know how to spell all of these right now. Just I want you to be able to recognize them when we try to read the book here in a second. So big picture, the Greeks don't have Christ. They don't have divine revelation, at least not special revelation in the Bible. But they do have natural revelation. The Bible says that the works of the law are written on the hearts of men, that there is a God consciousness in every man, Right? Socrates and Plato and the Greek philosophers have that. But they didn't have enough because of the fall, because of sin, to really discover the key to the blessed life, to the happy life. Right? And so, in a sense, this book offers a false gospel. It's the gospel of human reason. And Socrates is the Messiah of this false gospel who is going to try and shine the light of truth and philosophy on Athens to save them from their darkness and from their ignorance. But can philosophy save man? No. Is, can education save man? No. Why not? Because we have a sin problem, not just a lack of information problem. And that's what Socrates and Plato have no solution to. They have no atonement. They have no Christ. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but Jesus, however, shows us, especially on the Sermon on the Mount, He shows us the path to, to happiness and the blessed life. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He shows us the path to the blessed life. And He tells us of the heavenly Jerusalem, the perfect ideal city which is coming down to earth, but it's founded on, on God and, and it has within it the option for reconciliation between man and man and God and man. It has the atonement. So there can be peace, there can be flourishing, and there can be happiness in the city of God, but never in Plato's Republic. Make sense? But the good thing, probably the most important thing, and I think the thing we'll close with is that This book was um, revolutionary in many ways, and it asked 
so many questions that, as far as we can tell, other men weren't asking. And the good thing for that is that when Christianity came, the, the answers were finally provided. So God, through the philosophers in the golden age of Athens, really does set the stage for Christianity to come along and uh, provide answers to these many questions. And so when we read the Republic, we're going to be reading his vision of an ideal city, his quest for the city whose architect and and builder is the Lord. Um, But we're not going to find certain and absolute answers. And he doesn't even believe that he has discovered the ideal city. He believes it's a journey, and he even writes more books to try to discover it. Um, But you have to keep that in mind when we read this. We're not reading ultimate truth. We are reading this so that we can engage with it and apply um, our own minds and the Word of God to it. Got it? All right, that's it for